Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. My father, a major counsellor, served today's medicinal sake. After the formal ceremonies, everyone was invited in, the ladies were summoned from the tray room, and a drinking party began. Earlier, father had proposed the customary three rounds of sake, with three cups each time, which meant that the participants in the formal ceremonies had already had nine cups. Now he proposed the same again, but his majesty revised the suggestion. This time we'll make it three rounds of nine cups each. As a result, everyone was quite drunk when Go Fakuza passed his sake cup to my father and said, let the wild goose of the fields come to me this spring. Accepting this proposal with great deference, my father drank the cups of sake offered to him and retired. What did it all mean? I'd seen them speaking confidentially, but I had no way of knowing what was afoot. The Confessions of Lady Nijo, 1307. And welcome to The Other Half. Episode 5.5, Lady Nijo, The Confessions of a Concubine. Before we get going, I want to warn listeners that this episode briefly references what modern ears would see as sexual assault. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Last time, we saw Sevilla's world fall apart, as first her lover was assassinated by her son, and then he, along with several members of her family, were killed on the battlefield all the while the Roman Republic collapsed into tyranny. Today, we will take a big leap forward in time and eastward in direction to medieval Japan and the fascinating story of Lady Nijo. So far in this series, we've covered mistresses in the Western sense, but this is only one cultural construct. The further you travel east from the Mediterranean, you start to find concubinage as the predominant form of extramarital relationship. So, what is a concubine, and how are they different from mistresses? In her book, Mistresses, Elizabeth Abbott describes it this way, quote, Concubinage was the handmaiden of marriage, recognised by law and accepted by society. Cultures in which concubinage exist accepted the desire of men to not be legally constrained by monogamy and to accommodate their need to demonstrate their virility, wealth and power through having many sexual partners alongside their wives. These were not clandestine relationships hidden in the shadows, accepted with a nod and a wink. These were fully-fledged, established legal relationships – 
and crucially, the offspring of these relationships are usually considered legitimate, a marked difference from traditional Western mistresses. Now, though this simplifies things to a dangerous degree, it's possible to think of a concubine as halfway in between a wife and a mistress. Concubines are usually considered to be creatures for the far and near east, but actually they have existed the world over. Indeed, Aspasia, who we covered in the first episode, has been described by some as a concubine. And the word itself in English comes from the Latin concubinatus, which is defined as a woman living with a man in a quasi-marriage but not a legal one. These usually occurred in relationships between two people of different social stations. Indeed, many concubines throughout history have been slaves, but not all. Concubines come in as many flavours as mistresses, and our subject today will be far from the only one we'll discuss in this series. But before we learn about Lady Nijo, I'd like to thank all of my amazing patrons who keep the show going with their support. I couldn't do this podcast without them. It's thanks to their generosity that it's still going free for everyone forever. If you would like to become one of my patrons, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, where we post maps, pictures and other bonus content from the episode. To all my new listeners, welcome. The rest of you, welcome back. Women hold an exalted place in Japanese religion, history, and folklore. Goddesses in the Shinto faith are revered and respected, with the Japanese imperial family tracing its ancestry all the way back to the grandson of the sun goddess Amaterasu, whom she sent to earth to rule Japan. The stories of Japanese goddesses have them being free and joyous in their sexuality, very different from Christianity, of course, whose most revered woman is the Virgin. It's telling then that women in early and medieval Japanese history were far freer and more likely to be found in positions of power than anywhere in the West. For instance, between 522 and 784 CE, there were more ruling empresses than emperors, and they had a considerable influence over the direction of Japanese history. Empress Suiko, for instance, was the first to officially recognise Buddhism, and some have argued that Buddhism opened a gateway to the more male-dominated customs of Korea and China, which saw the erosion of rights of Japanese women. In everything from inheritance rights to the expectation of female virginity, from the late 7th century or so, women became increasingly subservient to men in culture and law. Much like in the West, Japanese marriage has not been traditionally based on romantic considerations, but on practicality. Marriages were often arranged, and there was no expectation for a wife to love her husband, or vice versa. 
This meant that extramarital affairs were common, and wives were expected to share their homes with a small number of concubines. But they rarely did so grudgingly. Women grew up in households with concubines and expected to either become one or share their husband with one in adulthood. Being a concubine was a social station. Even if her master died, a concubine was never allowed to marry anyone else. Japanese concubines had the status of servants and were required to obey both their master and his wife. Indeed, wives often had a say in their husband's choice in a concubine, though that wasn't always the case. Sometimes wives and concubines lived in harmony. Sometimes they existed in competition. It all depended on the personalities of those involved. So, why would a man take a concubine? Well, there is the obvious reason, sex and power, but there were others. One of the most common other reasons was to produce heirs. Husbands and wives are not always able to have children together, so why not increase your odds by taking on some concubines? Wifely infertility, or perceived infertility, was grounds for divorce in Japan, but this all could be avoided if the husband had concubines and had children with them. If they'd existed in Tudor England, no doubt Catherine of Aragon would have died comfortably as a queen. The Japanese word for concubine is mekake, which literally translates to borrowed womb. How romantic. These offspring, once born, particularly if they were sons, were not really considered the children of the concubine. There is something profoundly Margaret Atwood about this whole system. Most Japanese concubines lived and died in anonymity, rarely troubling the pens of historians, but there are a few notable exceptions. Indeed, we know quite a bit about one concubine in particular, because she wrote her own story. That woman is Lady Nijo. Now, I'm going to suppose that most of you have an, at best, spotty notion of Japanese history. Certainly, medieval Japanese history. Indeed, the word medieval is really a construct of European history, but it does work to an extent for a period in Japan between the 1180s and the mid-16th century. So a far shorter period in Europe, but they have some similarities. This was a period of flux and fragmentation in Japan, with a decentralised social structure, a weak emperor who was dominated by a warrior elite, who were the emerging samurai. The period of interest to us was the rule of the Kamakura Shogunate, one that lasted from 1185, the very beginning of the medieval age in Japan, and 1333 with the Kenmu Restoration. So, what is a shogunate? Shoguns were essentially military dictators that ruled Japan on behalf of the emperor. They emerged from the vicious Genpei War in the early 1180s, where two warrior clans, the Minamoto and the Taira, fought it out much like the Houses of York and Lancaster would in England several centuries later. It was shorter than the Wars of the Roses, but no less bloody or momentous for the future direction of Japanese history. Long-standing listeners, cast your minds back to episode 3.21, the last of season three, where we covered this in more detail in the section of the episode dedicated to Tomoe Gozen. The Minamoto clan emerged victorious in that war, setting up the Kamakura Shogunate, so-called because the shoguns ruled from the city of Kamakura. 
Shoguns dominated Japan in various guises up until the 19th century and have had many different shapes and flavours. This initial version of shogunate government saw a mixture of civil and warrior elites keep the wheels of government moving. That's not to say that rule wasn't brutal. Opponents of the regime and challengers to the shogunate were taken out, and supporters of the regime were given control over their lands. Meanwhile, the imperial family in Kyoto shriveled into impotence. The emperor morphed into being more a figurehead than a real leader, an important religious and cultural figure, but more or less irrelevant in a political sense. Everything from civil government, judicial arbitration and foreign affairs was now controlled from Kamakura, not Kyoto. So what did the emperor and his court do with their time? Well, they strove to conform to an idealised version of the past, with complex rules of fashion, decorum and behaviour meant to distract everyone from the fact that no one had actually had any real power. Okay, so we're going to skip ahead a few decades to 1246 and the accession to the chrysanthemum throne of Emperor Go Fukuza. The Go part of his name is often translated to mean the second, so one could also call him Fukuza the second. He was four years old when he came to the throne. You might expect that to have been because his father died suddenly and unexpectedly, but no. He had actually retired to a monastery, though he would retain quite a bit of power and influence. Indeed, in 1260, he managed to engineer the abdication of the 15-year-old Gofukuza and his replacement with his younger son and Gofukuza's brother, Kaneyama. As an older brother myself, I greatly sympathise with Fukuza against this blatant example of younger sibling one-upmanship. When their father, the semi-retired emperor, died in 1272, the two brothers got in a dispute over the succession, with both believing that their son should inherit Kamiyama. Eventually, an agreement was reached where Kamiyama's son would inherit the throne on his father's death, but that his heir would be Gofukuza's son. This caused, as you might imagine, some ruptures in the family going forward. Into this arena, filled with intrigue and backbiting, came Lady Nijo. She was also aged just four when she arrived at the imperial court, that of the ex-emperor Fakuza, following her mother's death. She came from an illustrious lineage. Her father claimed descent through the Minamoto clan to the 10th century emperor Murakami, He had a position in the imperial court and was well known for how well learned he was, a skill and passion that he passed on to his daughter. I've been calling her Lady Nijo, but we don't actually know what her real birth name was. It's not referenced in her autobiography, and indeed if it wasn't for that we would have no evidence for her life at all. The name Nijo actually referred to the street on which she lived and grew up, Second Avenue. With First Avenue being the home of the imperial family, this shows us how well connected her family was. Her mother, Sukidai, had been in Gofukuza's household before marriage, and it's thought that she had, how do I put this, initiated the young emperor on the birds and the bees. She had continued to be his, well, sex tutor for a little while before leaving his service to get married and give birth to Lady Nijo. When Tsukidai tragically died when Nijo was only four, she was transferred to the court of the former emperor to be raised. 
Though it's fair to say that the Emperor was actually just ticking down the days on his calendar before she came of age. So far, so creepy. So it came to be that, at the age of around 14, she discovered that her father had given his blessing for the former Emperor, a man almost exactly twice her age, to make his move on her. And that is what is described in the extract at the beginning of this episode. The whole thing made sense to her father. This could only raise him in the esteem of his employer. And the Emperor had the hearts for Nijo's mum. Her daughter would surely be the next best thing. The men had decided Nijo would have to live with the consequences of their lust for power and control. One night, Gofukuza came by the family home while Nijo was asleep. After a few drinks, he entered her room and lay beside her. She awoke and yelled at him, asking what the hell he was doing. She records in her autobiography that, quote, He began to tell me how he had loved me ever since I was a child, how he had been waiting until now when I was 14, and so many other things that I have not words to record them all. But I was not listening. I could only weep until even his sleeves were dampened with my tears as he tried to comfort me. He did not attempt to force me, but he said, How can you continue to be so cold, especially now that everyone knows about this? How romantic. Shockingly, his revealing that everyone knew about this except her didn't exactly win her over to his arrangement. She felt hurt, humiliated, and angry. Eventually, he lost his patience and forced himself on her. She wrote, quote, he treated me so mercilessly that my thin gown was badly torn. She was traumatised by the experience, as we might well imagine. Afterwards, he pledged his affection to her. She even forced her to trail back with him in his carriage to the palace. Quote, I suppose our ride might be considered amusing. For all the way to the palace, Gofakusa pledged his affection to me, as if he were a storied lover making off with his mistress. But for me, the road we travelled seemed so dreary that I could do nothing but weep. She was placed in a room at the palace where she was regularly visited by the emperor, much to the chagrin of his wife, the empress, who was none too pleased with this new arrangement. At this stage, it was unclear as to what her position at court would be. It was not unusual for highborn girls to enter into this kind of arrangement before moving on and marrying well. That was, after all, what had happened to Nijo's mother. However, tragedy would strike again in the following year, 1272, when Nijo's father also died. She was now left alone, with no means of support. The emperor let her know this with all the subtlety of a sledgehammer hitting a grape. He said to her, quote, Your father's case seems hopeless. You will be left with no one to depend on. Who besides me? will take pity on you. Her father's death was a hammer blow to her social status. She wished to take holy orders and join a Buddhist convent, but she was not allowed. The emperor needed her. The standard mourning period around this time was a full year, but Lady Nijo had been barely gone a month when she was recalled to the palace. 
she had been on a path to becoming one of the emperor's consorts. That was the empress, and that position was taken. But something reasonably close. But now, things were less clear. There was a rigid social hierarchy of the emperor's women. At the top was his wife, the empress. Then there were his consorts, essentially high-ranking concubines who could bear his legitimate children. And then, below them, were the concubines. Their children were all considered illegitimate. It's not clear at this point exactly which of these Lady Nijo was. Indeed, it seems this was a kind of audition phase. Certainly, had her father lived, she was on track to becoming a consort. But without his influence, that would be almost impossible to achieve. One surefire way to do it, though, would be to produce a son. The emperor needed heirs, and so far he had only produced a litany of daughters. Give him a son, and her position would be secured. He would need them to be legitimised, after all. Her position would be secure, and she actually managed to do this fairly quickly. She still had no love for Gokfakuza. Indeed, she makes it clear in her diary that the thought of him still filled her with something in between hatred and revulsion. But she was determined to make the best of what had become her lot in life. In her own words, she wrote, quote, I had begun to feel at this time that I needed to change my way of life. Too many things depressed me. I was obsessed with thoughts of my father and my own undefined position. In 1273, after a long and painful labour, Nijo gave birth to the emperor's long-awaited son. Go Fukuza acknowledged him immediately, presenting his baby son with a sword, which I think we can all agree is a perfectly safe thing to give to an infant. Nijo's overwhelming feeling at this point was not joy, but relief. For you see, Gofakuza had not been her only lover around this time. In her autobiography, she admits to numerous flings, some with unnamed men, others that she gives fun nicknames to, such as Snowdorn, a high-ranking official in the imperial court. She had feared that news of her affairs had gotten out and that this might cast doubt on the paternity. It's possible that Gofakuza did know. It doesn't appear that Nijo was a woman blessed with subtlety, but he probably wouldn't have cared all that much. He had his son, that is all that mattered. She had not long recovered from the birth of her son when she fell pregnant again, and this time there was no doubt in the paternity. This is because Gofakuza had not visited her chambers for some time, and there was about one month discrepancy. And the longer things went on, the harder it was to hide that she was far more pregnant than she should have been if the baby had been the emperor's. She feigned an illness, lying in a dark room for days at a time to avoid the eyes of the emperor and his messengers who came to check on her. Her baby daddy was the man that she nicknamed Snowdorn, his real name being Sayonji Sanakane. He appears to have been a kind, tender lover who truly cared for Nijo. He looked out for her, ensuring that she had everything she needed, and stayed with her throughout her labour. Her feelings for him are made clear in the fact that she devotes far more space in her autobiography to the birth of her second child than the first. Quote, Sayonji lit a lamp to look at the child, and I got a glimpse of fine black hair and eyes already opened. It was my own child, and naturally enough, I thought she was adorable. 
As I looked on, he took the white gown beside me and wrapped the baby in it, cut the umbilical cord with a short sword that lay by my pillow, and, taking the baby, left without a word to anyone. It'll be all right. You have nothing to worry about. If she lives, you'll be able to see her, Sionji said on his return, attempting to console me. Yet I could not forget the face I had glimpsed but once. I also know that it would have been impossible for me to keep her, even if I so desired. There was nothing for me to do but wrap my sleeves around myself and sob inwardly. The next day, the emperor received a message that Nijo had miscarried the child. She was right, of course. It would have been impossible for her to acknowledge the child as hers, and worse was to come. Her son, her firstborn child, had died, as she writes, quote, like a raindrop after a winter rain. She was inconsolable. The grief of her parting with her daughter compounded with the death of her infant son. Her young life had been filled with loss and grief, yet this didn't make these losses any easier to bear. She began to crave companionship, longing after Sayonji whenever he left her in the morning. She even craved the attention of Gofakuza, admitting to feeling jealous whenever she was at the palace and he was with one of his other wives or concubines. While he still seemed to have affection for Nijo, his wife had no love for her. Possibly because she provided with him a son, however briefly he had lived, and she had not, or for some other slight that we don't know about, the Empress ostracised Nijo, calling her arrogant and self-obsessed. And there does appear to be some truth in this. In her autobiography, Nijo has a very high opinion of herself and how cultured she was, and gives off an air of superiority that I could well imagine would get the backs up of those around her. She also criticises many of the Emperor's other romantic conquests for not matching up to her exalted standards. They were all deficient in education, behaviour and fashion. They lacked character. They were boring. If she publicly gave off half of what she wrote in private, then it's not hard to see why she would make enemies. Though the emperor defended Nijo, he did defer to his wife's anger somewhat, and Nijo began to find life rather difficult. Some of the sources that I have read are rather scathing about Nijo's conduct here, calling her foolish and reckless, risking what was left of her reputation and relationship with the emperor, her only means of support. Indeed, one of the staunchest critics of Nijo's conduct was her later self. After another man left her chamber, she wrote, quote, how foolish I was, even now these memories bring tears to my eyes. But it's worth remembering that she was still a teenager, on her own, left to fend for herself. Her only protector was also, arguably, her abuser. It was a difficult situation, and she was doing the best she could. Not all of her affairs were conducted behind the Emperor's back. Indeed, some were done on his orders and against her wishes. In the imperial court, it was not uncommon for an emperor, or some other powerful man with a lot of concubines, to lend them out to friends and allies. It was seen as a sign of hospitality, a way of greasing the wheels of diplomacy and keeping those that matter sweet. She was not in a position to refuse Gofakusa, but that didn't mean she had to like it. One time this happened was in 1277, when Gofakusa bestowed his mistress to the regent Kanehira. Nijo writes, quote, His majesty had retired, and I was massaging his back, 
when the man who had accosted me at the pavilion the previous night came to the door. I would like to speak with you a moment, he called. Not knowing how to escape, I remained perfectly still. Just for a short time, while his majesty is sleeping, he replied. Gofakusa then whispered to me, Hurry up, go. You have nothing to worry about. I was so embarrassed that I wanted to die. Then his majesty reached out and, seizing my hand, I was near the foot of his mat, he pulled me up. Without intending it, I was compelled to go. From here, you can easily go in to attend his majesty, my would-be lover said. We were separated from Gofakusa only by a frail sliding door, and though he feigned sleep, I was wretchedly aware that he was listening. Again, gross. She was also forced to be the go-between for the emperor and some of his other sexual conquests, including with a Shinto priestess and a fan-maker's daughter. This all makes the power dynamic here very clear. He was in control, she was the servant. This pattern continued for the next few years. Nijo had two more children with her latest lover, a man she nicknamed Dawn Moon, who was actually a man called Priest Prince Shojo, who was the emperor's half-brother and abbot of the Nina Temple. The labour for both these children she had to keep hidden to avoid society's prying eyes. Yet the relationship that would eventually bring about her downfall was with Gofukuza's brother and fellow retired emperor Kaneyama. The beginning of this affair is outlined in a vivid episode in Nijo's autobiography. Kaneyama had come to visit his brother, and Nijo was called up to serve them drinks after dinner. Everyone was royally trolleyed, and there was a lot of drunken singing and crying. Eventually, it was just the three of them there, at which point Kaneyama essentially requested that he might be able to share her for the night. Now, Gofukuza was not, as we know, averse to agreeing to let other men have sex with Nijo, but he was also a bit of the jealous type. And let's not forget that he had been forced off the throne in favour of his younger brother. He wasn't about to share his toys with him. However, on account of all of the drink, Gofukuza fell asleep, and Kaneyama propositioned Nijo. She wasn't able to refuse an emperor, so she slept with him. However, like a jerk, Kaneyama couldn't resist rubbing it in his brother's face. If there's anything more fragile than a man's ego, it's that of an elder brother ribbed by his more successful younger sibling. Through no fault of her own, Gofukuza was furious at his concubine, and this made her vulnerable. It was not long after this that she fell pregnant with her second child with Prince Shoujo, But before she gave birth to their child, he also tragically died. Her confinement and the need for secrecy, not to mention her grief at the death of her lover, meant that she was absent from court for a long time. Sensing an opportunity, the Empress used her influence with her husband and the imperial family to have Nijo expelled from the court permanently. Though she initially experienced shock and anger when she eventually left the palace for the last time, Nijo eventually felt something unexpected. Relief. She was free. She'd been under the thrall and control of Gofakusa since she was four years old. She had been raised to be his concubine almost from the cradle, and had been under his control practically her entire life. This had been the only life she had ever known. Being forcibly removed from it must have been daunting. But, on the other hand... She was able to do something that she had always wanted to be, 
She took holy orders and became a Buddhist nun. Now, at the age of 26, she was finally free. It was not unusual for people of the court to retreat into a religious life. But Lady Nijo took a rather less travelled path. First of all, she travelled around widely without any servants or attendants. This was considered to be most improper. Independent women were not exactly celebrated in medieval Japan. This was partly by choice, but also to an extent by circumstance. She didn't have any money. She made a small living by reciting poetry and advising on interior decor, but it wasn't much. For her poetry, her inspiration was the 12th century poet Saigyo. She wrote that she admired him, and that she drew inspiration from his choosing of his own destiny. Quote, Although I could never endure a life of ascetic hardship, I wish that I could at least renounce this life and wander wherever my feet might lead me. Learning to empathise with the dew under the blossoms and to express the resentment of the scattering autumn leaves and make out of this a record of my travels that might live on after my death. But I could not escape the grief of the three paths a woman must follow. First, I obeyed my father, then I served my lord. But my life left something to be desired, and with each passing day, I grew more averse to this sad world. For the first time, she was following a journey of her own devising. She went where she wanted, spoke with whom she wanted, and did what she wanted. This included spending time with people from all social backgrounds, another scandalous act to add to her CV. This time spent with the poor made her a more compassionate person. Her autobiography becomes less catty, less resentful. This fits in with her newfound sense of faith, that all people, no matter their background, are linked within Buddhahood. Yet, for all of this, her mind was never truly off Gofakusa. She mentions him often throughout this period. Dr. Malgorazata Chitko, in her paper The Three Faces of Lady Nijo, calls him her spiritual companion on her journey. They even met again on a few occasions. The first time was eight years after she had been expelled from court, when she was visiting a shrine at Hashiman. He too had taken holy vows, and when she arrived she was told that he was there. Dumbfounded, she was led to his presence. He called for her to come in. She writes, quote, It was his majesty's voice, unchanged, speaking directly from the past. I didn't know what he wanted, and my heart was so agitated that I could not move at all. I recognised you easily, he said. I have never forgotten you. It was a bittersweet meeting. She was pleased to see him, but he only wished to talk about past days that she had left behind, and was glad that they were so. Though she does not say it outright, she implies that they made love that night. When she left, she did so conflicted, her heart heavy with feeling. She described herself as, quote, suppressing my emotions by lecturing my heart. The two would continue to write to each other over the next few years and would meet again, each meeting an emotional occasion. The two seemed star-crossed. You get the sense that even if they wanted, they would never be truly kept apart for too long. For Nijo, though her past with Gofakusa was complicated and messy, and that's putting it mildly, it was her story. When he died in 1304, 
She mourned him as intensely as she had her other departed lovers. Quote, Even when it grew late, I could not bring myself to return home and lingered alone in the empty courtyard, summoning up memories of the now distant past. As images of his majesty floated before my eyes, I felt pangs of grief impossible for words to describe. Her autobiography ends not long after this. It seems that with Gofakuza's death, an entire chapter of her life had ended. Perhaps she lived a long time afterwards, when the narrative ends she was only 49 years old, or maybe she was entering her final years. We simply have no way of knowing. Her autobiography, which she wished to survive her, as I've said, is the only real record that we have of her. She called it the Tao Zugatari, or A Tale That No One Asked For. It was typically translated into English as The Confessions of Lady Nijo. I've been calling it an autobiography, but it actually reads far more like a diary. It's intensely personal, filled with feeling and emotion, which is highly unusual for this period in history. It doesn't portray the establishment in a particularly positive light, but it most damningly shows the emperor as fallible, as a man. As such, it was suppressed for nearly eight centuries, until it was rediscovered in the Imperial Archives in 1938. Intriguingly, the version found was not the original, but a copy made by a 17th century emperor that he had done by hand. It was not published for public consumption, though, until the mid-1960s. This was a time when Japan was still emerging from the Second World War, after which Emperor Hirohito, in exchange for being allowed to stay on the throne, renounced any claims to divinity. Thus, Lady Nijo's portrayal of one of his ancestors as a man with virtues, yes, but also flaws, was no longer so blasphemous. Given the only record that we have of Lady Nijo is from her own pen, and the version that we have had been copied down and perhaps edited, possibly many times, it's impossible to know just how much of it is true and how much is fiction, imagination or exaggeration. But that doesn't stop it from being one of the most important texts, both in Japanese history and its literature. It's a rare telling of history from a female perspective, covering topics that most writers at the time would have considered taboo. If even half of what she writes is true, Leonie Jo was a remarkable woman who lived an extraordinary life. One film with trauma and sorrow, but also redemption and freedom. A triumph over adversity and of rebirth. She finishes her autobiography by writing, quote, Now I am anxious about the outcome of my long-cherished desire, and I worry lest the faith I have kept these many years prove fruitless. So that all my dreams might not prove empty, I have been writing this useless account, though I doubt it will long survive me. I am pleased to say that she was wrong. Japan will never forget Lady Nijo.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.